0: Chapter sixty-three of *The Headless Horseman*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Headless Horseman: A Strange Tale of Texas* by Mayne Reid. Chapter sixty-three: A Jury of Regulators. The cry that had called the young Creole so suddenly from the side of her companion was the verdict of a jury in whose rude phrase was also included the pronouncing of the sentence. The word hang was ringing in her ears as she started away from the spot. While pretending to take an interest in the play of the silver fish, her thoughts were upon that scene of less gentle character transpiring in front of the jackalay. Though the trees hindered her from having a view of the stage, she knew the actors that were on it and could tell by their speeches how the play was progressing about the time of her dismounting a tableau had been formed that merits a minute description the men she had left behind were no longer in scattered groups but drawn together into a crowd in shape ruffling resembling the circumference of a circle inside it some half-score figures were conspicuous among them the tall form of the regulator chief with three or four of his marshals woodley poindexter was there and by his side, Cassius Calhoun. These no longer appeared to act with authority, but rather as spectators or witnesses in the judicial drama about being enacted. Such in reality was the nature of the scene. It was a trial for murder, a trial before Justice Lynch, this grim dignitary being typified in the person of the regulator chief, with a jury composed of all the people upon the ground, all except the prisoners. Of these, there were two, Maurice Girald and his man, Phelum. They are inside the ring, both prostrate upon the grass, both fast-bound in rawhide hopes that hinder them from moving hand or foot. Even their tongues are not free. Phelum has been cursed and scared into silence, while to his master's speech is rendered impossible by a piece of stick, fastened bit-like between his teeth. It has been done to prevent interruption by the insane ravings, that would otherwise issue from his lips even the tight-drawn thongs cannot keep him in place two men one at each shoulder with a third seated upon his knees hold him to the ground his eyes alone are free to move and these rolling in their sockets glare upon his guards with wild unnatural glances fearful to encounter only one of the prisoners is arraigned on the capital charge the other is but doubtfully regarded as an accomplice the servant alone has been examined, asked to confess all he knows, and what he has to say for himself, it is no use putting questions to his master. Phelim has told his tale, too strange to be credited, though the strangest part of it, that relating to his having seen a horseman without a head, is looked upon as the least improbable. He cannot explain it and his story but strengthens the suspicion already aroused that the spectral apparition is a part of the scheme of murder all stuff his tales about tiger fights and indians say who is to whom he has been imparting them a pack of lies contrived to mislead us nothing else the trial has lasted scarce ten minutes and yet the jury has come to their conclusion in the minds of most already predisposed to it there is a full conviction that Henry Poindexter is a dead man, and that Maurice Girald is answerable for his death. Every circumstance already known has been reconsidered, while to these have been added the new facts discovered at the Jacalay. the ugliest of which is the finding of the cloak and hat. The explanations given by the Galwegian, confused and incongruous, carry no credit. Why should they? they are the inventions of an accomplice there are some who will scarce stay to hear them some who impatiently cry out let the murderer be hanged as if this verdict had been anticipated a rope lies ready upon the ground with a noose at its end it is only a lasso but for the purpose calcraft could not produce a more perfect piece of cord a sycamore standing near offers a horizontal limb good enough for a gallows the vote is taken. Viva voce. Eighty out of the hundred jurors express their opinion that Maurice Gerald must die. His hour appears to have come. And yet the sentence is not carried into execution. The rope is suffered to lie guileless on the grass. No one seems willing to lay hold of it. Why that hanging back, as if the thong of horsehide was a venomous snake, that none dares to touch, the majority, the plurality to use a true western word has pronounced the sentence of death some strengthening it with rude even blasphemous speech why is it not carried out why for want of that unanimity that stimulates to immediate action from want of the proofs to produce it there is a minority not satisfied that with less noise but equally earnest emphasis have answered no it is this that has caused the suspension of the violent proceedings among this minority is Judge Lynch himself, Sam Manley, the chief of the regulators. He has not yet passed sentence, or even signified his acceptance of the acclamatory verdict. Fellow citizens, cries he, as soon as he has an opportunity of making himself heard, I am of the opinion that there is a doubt in this case, and I reckon we ought to give the accused the benefit of it, that is, till he be able to say his own say about it. "'It's no use questioning him now, as ye all see. "'We have him tight and fast, "'and there's not much chance of his getting clear if guilty. "'Therefore, I move we postpone the trial till... "'What's the use of postponing it?' "'interrupts a voice already loud for the prosecution, "'and which can be distinguished as that of Cassius Calhoun. "'What's the use, Sam Manley? "'It's all very well for you to talk that way. "'But if you had a friend foully murdered, "'I won't say cousin.' but a son, a brother. You might not be so soft about it. What more do you want to show that the skunk's guilty? Further proofs? That's just what we want, Captain Calhoun. Can you give them Mr. Cassius Calhoun? inquires a voice from the outside circle, with a strong Irish accent. Perhaps I can. Let's have them, then. God knows you've had evidence enough. A jury of his own, stupid countrymen. Bar that abolition, shouts the man, who has demanded... The additional f- evidence just remember mr calhoun you're in texas and not mississippi bear that in mind or you may run your tongue into trouble sharp as it is i don't mean to offend anyone says calhoun backing out of the dilemma into which his irish antipathies had led him even an englishman if there's one here there you're welcome go on cries the mollified milician. well then as i was saying there's been evidence enough, and more than enough in my opinion, but if you want more, I can give it. Give it, give it, Cries a snore of responding voices that keep up the demand, while Calhoun seems to hesitate. Gentlemen, says he, squaring himself to the crowd, as if for a speech. What I've got to say now, I could have told you long ago, but I didn't think it was needed. You all know what's happened between this man and myself, and I had no wish to be thought revengeful. I'm not, and if it wasn't, "'that I'm sure he has done the deed. "'Sure as the head's on my body.' "'Calhoun speaks stammeringly, "'seeing that the phrase, involuntarily escaping from his lips, "'has produced a strange effect upon his auditory "'as it has upon himself. "'If not sure, I, I should still say nothing of what I've seen, "'or rather heard, for it was in the night, and I saw nothing.' "'What did you hear, Mr. Calhoun?' demands the Regulator Chief, resuming his judicial demeanour, for a time forgotten in the confusion of voting the verdict. "'Your quarrel with the prisoner, of which I believe everybody has heard, can have nothing to do with your testimony here. "'Nobody's going to accuse you of false swearing on that account. "'Please proceed, sir. What did you hear, and where and when did you hear it?' "'To begin, then, with the time. It was the night my cousin was missing.' Though, of course, we didn't miss him till the morning, last Tuesday night. Tuesday night, well? I turned in myself, and thought Henry had done the same. But what with the heat? And the infernal mosquitoes, I couldn't get any sleep. I started up again, lit a cigar, and after smoking it a while in the room, I thought of taking a turn upon the top of the house. You know the old Hatchienda has a flat roof, I suppose, while i went up there to get cool and continued to pull away at the weed it must have been then about midnight or maybe a little earlier i can't tell for i'd been tossing about on my bed and took no note of the time just as i had smoked to the end of my cigar and was about to take a second out of my case i heard voices there were two of them they were up the river as i thought on the other side they were a good way off in the direction of the town I mightn't have been able to distinguish them or tell one from the other if they'd been talking in the ordinary way, but they weren't. There was loud, angry talk, and I could tell that two men were quarrelling. I suppose it was some drunken rowdies going home from Oberdoffer's Tavern, and I should have thought no more about it. But as I listened, I recognized one of the voices, and then the other. The first was my cousin, Henry's the second that of the man who was there, the man who has murdered him. Please proceed, Mr. Calhoun. Let us hear the whole of the evidence you have promised to produce. It will be time enough then to state your opinions. Well, gentlemen, as you may imagine, I was no little surprised at hearing my cousin's voice, supposing him asleep in his bed. So sure was I of its being him, that I didn't think of going to his room to see if he was there. I knew it was his voice, and I was quite as sure that the other was that of the horse-catcher. I thought it uncommonly queer in Henry being out at such a late hour, as he was never much given to that sort of thing. But out he was, I couldn't be mistaken about that. I listened to catch what the quarrel was about, but though I could distinguish the voices, I couldn't make out anything that was said on either side. What I did here was Henry calling him by some strong names, as if my cousin had been first insulted, and then I heard the Irishman threatening to make him rue it, each loudly pronounced the other's name, and that convinced me about its being them. I should have gone out to see what the trouble was, but I was in my slippers, and before I could draw on a pair of boots, it appeared to be all over. I waited for half an hour for Henry to come home. He didn't come but as i supposed he had gone back to oberdoffer's and fallen in with some of the fellows from the fort i concluded he might stay there a spell and i went back to my bed now gentlemen i've told you all i know my poor cousin never came back to casa del corvo never more laid his side on a bed for that we found by going to his room next morning his bed that night must have been somewhere upon the prairie or in the chaparral and there's the only man who knows where. With a wave of his hand, the speaker triumphantly indicated the accused, whose wild straining eyes told how unconscious he was of the terrible accusation, or of the vengeful looks, with which, from all sides, he was now regarded. Calhoun's story was told with a circumstantiality, that went far to produce conviction of the prisoner's guilt. The concluding speech appeared eloquent of truth, and was followed by a clamorous demand for the execution. To proceed, hang, hang is the cry from fourscore voices. The judge himself seems to waver. The minority has been diminished. No longer eighty out of the hundred, but ninety repeat the cry. The more moderate eight, overborne by the inundation of vengeful voices, the crowd sways to and fro, resembling a storm fast and increasing to a tempest. It soon comes to its height a ruffian rushes towards the rope though none seem to have noticed it he has parted both from the side of the calhoun with whom he has been holding a whispered conversation one of those border ruffians of southern descent ever ready by the stake of the philanthropist or the martyr such as have been late typified in the military murders of jamaica who have disgraced the english name to the limits of all time he lays hold of the lasso, and quickly arranges its loop around the neck of the condemned man, alike unconscious of trial and condemnation. No one steps forward to oppose the act. The ruffian, bristling with bowie knife and pistols, has it all to himself, or rather he is assisted by a scoundrel of the same kidney, one of the side devant guards of the prisoner. The spectators stand aside, or look tranquilly upon the proceedings, most express some mute approval some encouraging the executioners with earnest vociferations of up with him hang him a few seem stupefied by surprise a less number show sympathy but not one dares to give proof of it by taking part with the prisoner the rope is around his neck the end with the noose upon it the other is being swung over the sycamore soon must the soul of murray sterald go back to its god end of Chapter Sixty-Three.